0: Good afternoon to the UK Column listeners and uh, I'm here this afternoon with Justin Walker and uh, Justin is a, an old friend, we've known each other for very many years, we've done all sorts of things in the battle to uh, wake people up to what what's been going on in this country and we particularly did work together in the British Constitution Group which probably Merit some discussion in its own right, but maybe we'll save that bit for another day. Justin, thank you very much for giving up part of your Sunday to talk to me. Thank you very
1: much, Brian, actually taking me off puppy watch. Uh, we've got a very uh, athletic puppy who is about the size of a Labrador, and trust me, it's nice to have a break. He's a lovely dog, but my God, <laughs> hard work.
0: Keeping you busy. But uh, that's all the fresh air and exercise that comes with it. That's the good thing. So, yeah, well done, uh, Justin. We have talked about the Bradbury Pound over a great many years, and uh, I know you've been you've been doing some interviews with other people talking about it. But I'm really glad that you've uh, agreed to speak to me about the Bradbury Pound because it was one of the things that you introduced to the column to Mike and myself many years ago. Um, You've got quite a fascinating story as to how you came across the Bradbury Pound. But ultimately, the Bradbury Pound stimulates um, a lot of discussion on very interesting points around the money supply and how money is created. Before we get on to that, just tell the audience a bit about how you came across the Bradbury Pound.
1: Okay, well, it is quite a story. And in, in fact, you, you almost imagine this is a sort of Richard Hannay, 739 Steps type story, uh, because it really is uh, uh, quite strange. And it also shows, I think, that there are good people on the inside who don't want the bad guys to win. So that's, that's very positive to start with. Okay, who am I? Uh, well, my late uncle, was Sir Harry Pilkington, later the Lord Pilkington of St. Helens, Pilkington's glass. He was an uncle by marriage. And he married my uh, second marriage to both of them. He married my uh, aunt in 1960, 61 uh, actually. And uh, he be- immediately became a very, very friendly uncle to the family. And he was a lovely man. He was very kind, very eccentric um, and generous. And uh, he also likes steam engines, and as I have a penchant for steam engines. We got on like got on pretty well. And uh, anyway, I, I sort of knew something about uh, my uncle at the time, um, and I knew that he was a director of the Bank of England. But uh, um, I'll, I'll tell you the story of when I was 16 and what a conversation I had with my uncle, and then I'll lead on to what I found out after his death. Um, when I was uh, going back to school um, from Liverpool down to London, my uncle said, Well, why don't you share the train with me? I'm on the Pullman and I'd love you to have me. you can come and have breakfast with me. And I was going back to do my O levels and I was 16. And uh, on, the, in, on the train, he asked me what my future career prospects were. What was I intending to do? So I rabbited on about uh, going into do, doing a short service commission in the army and then going into the family business. And he said, well, look, I'm going to give you two bits of advice to take through life. First of all, never, ever believe anything you read in the press, because we control it. And secondly, never believe a politician when they say they can do something. They can't unless we say they can. Now, to a 16-year-old, that went straight over my head. But the weirdness of the conversation was such that I didn't forget it. Now, moving on, he, he, he died in, what was it, 1985, I think it was. Um, but uh, Tony Gosling, um, an investigative journalist, former BBC, and who is a friend of mine, was doing some research on the Bilderberg Group. And it transpired that my uncle, unknown to myself and the rest of the family, had attended in 1954 the first ever Bilderberg Group meeting actually held at the Hotel Bilderberg, and uh, he, he was there representing the FBI, uh, not the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but he was representing the organization that came before the Confederation of British Industry, which was the Federation of British Industry. And uh, I've got pictures of him there, and you can see him in the background. And, of course, the Bilderberg Group was set up as an elitist grouping to bring American and European um, hierarchies together to effectively create agendas for the rest of us to follow. Now, um, as I said, he was made, that was in 1954. In 1955, he became a director of the Bank of England. A post that he held until 1972. And in fact, that journey down to London, where my uncle said those strange things, was he was actually going to one of the last meetings he attended at the Bank of England as a director. Now, fast forward, I, I by that time, I'd been involved in the Green Party. Um, I, I, I knew that when 9-11 happened, that we were looking at a pack of lights, I couldn't get my head round it and stuff. And I started to be, I suppose, started to embrace critical thinking. And uh, anyway, a whole host of things were sort of happening. And that's when I, I sort of came across you, Brian. I think it was about 2005, wasn't it? Something like that. Because we knew that the Constitution and the and basically there was something going on whereby the City of London or the corporate um, international movement were controlling our politicians. Uh, We couldn't quite get our head around it, but we knew that things were not right and that people were operating at levels in local government and regional and what have you, behaving, they were like common purpose that you discovered. And we started to think things are not right. Things are, something is wrong here. There's something happening beneath the surface that we don't know what is about. Now, I, I started, it was just by sheer luck, I started to think about money. Uh, Because I came across a very good uh, article by a lady called Ellen Brown, um, who is a U.S. attorney, but who had been, well, she's still alive. She's a a lovely lady um, and very well informed. And she was promoting Abraham Lincoln's greenback dollar. Now, this was an occasion during the American Civil War, when things were going very badly for the North, for the Union. And uh, they'd lost the first Battle of Bull Run. The Confederates were almost at the gates of Washington, um, and things were going very badly. And then there was a knock on the door for poor old Abe to tell him that uh, we're running out of money too. We ain't got much money left. And one of his sidekicks suggested, why don't you create money that's based on the wealth, no, on, on the wealth of the North? In other words, on the, on the credit of what the North controlled. And the North actually did have most of the industries and stuff. So they decided to create these greenback dollars. They're called greenback because they're grey on one side, green on the other side. And this money was debt-free, interest-free paper money that had, was nothing to do with gold or anything like that. Uh, and uh, by the way, they had rejected offers by the City of London bankers to loan money at something like 30 35 36% interest. So Abraham Lincoln knew immediately that that would be putting a debt noose around what was left of America after the Civil War, and they just realized that that was a no-no. So they, they went ahead and created these greenback dollars, and everyone was happy. The armaments industries were happy, accepting them, the soldiers were accepting them as pay, the people in, in normal day-to-day, and of course there was a, um, a, a sort of similarity to something called Colonial script, S-C-R-I-P, which the colonists were putting out uh, in the 1750s, 1760s, 1770s. And, of course, this was the, probably the real reason why the um, American War of Independence was fought, uh, because Franklin, who was an American colonist, he was over in Britain, he was telling the, uh, the City of London, how successful this script money was, which was, again, money created by the colony that was based on the wealth of the colony. It was debt-free, interest-free money, and they put just enough into the, uh, into the local economy for farmers and people manufacturing candles and guns or whatever it is. And it was enough money there to let business flourish without debt. And uh, of course, it wasn't involving the uh, bankers in gold or anything to do with the City of London. So they were not very happy with this because the City of London and the bankers and the merchant bankers wanted to make money out of the colonists. And uh, of course, history has got it written that the real reason for the American War of Independence was uh, no taxation without representation and the Boston Tea Party and all this sort of stuff, when in fact, it was about the City of London wanting to get back control over the colonists. Uh, and, of course, the rest is history, George Washington all the rest of it. Um, and, of course, they eventually did get control over the American bankers. They tried many times. Um, and some of the presidents, like Jefferson, they said absolutely no. And that he declared war on bankers. But eventually, in, was it 1912, the Federal Reserve, uh, by very, 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 well, should we just say, uh, that everyone had gone home for Christmas and they kept just enough people back to vote it through. I think it was 19, December 1912 or something. And they all had a meeting on Jekyll Island. Jekyll Island. There's a whole story to this, which is absolutely appalling. And in fact, some of the people who were opposed to the Federal Reserve sadly died on the Titanic. It was just very convenient that certain people who were opposed to the Federal Reserve Bank uh, drowned. But anyway, we move on. So I, I sort of read all this stuff. And I suddenly thought to myself, well, why can't we have um, a greenback pound? And I think I remember talking to you, Brian.
0: Do you remember? I, I said it to you. Yes, uh, yes, I I do, I do remember, Justin. Yeah. Uh, many, many years ago. Many, it many was in your old paper in those days, a good
1: old newspaper. So you said, well, why don't you write a small article and we'll put it in? So I did. And uh, I didn't think any more of it. Anyway, well, Trump Well, fast forward now to, when is it, Uh, let's see, it was September 2012, and uh, I was living up in the Yorkshire Dales, and uh, my wife was uh, uh, doing the cooking in the house, and my daughter was doing her homework, and I was just twiddling my thumbs, and the phone goes. And my immediate reaction was, oh lordy, that means the... uh, might be one of my wife's friends on the phone. That means she'll come away from the cooking, tell me you go in the kitchen, and then I'll be responsible for burning the meal. So I was a little bit sort of uh, reluctant. Anyway, I picked up the phone and I said, hello, and a very posh voice said, oh, hello, is that uh, Justin Walker? And I said, well, it might be, I said jokingly. He said, well, let me put your mind at rest. Am I talking to the nephew of the late Sir Harry Pilkington, later Lord Pilkington? And he said, I said, yes, yes, excellent, he said. Now, you don't know me, and you won't be able to trace this call, but uh, I'm ringing on behalf of my father, who's not long for this world. I sort of said, oh, sorry about that. He said, now, look, he said, he's read your article in the UK column, and he wants to let you know about a word. My father was a director of the Bank of England with your uncle. I went, oh, right. And he wants you to know the word and now I panicked because I realised there was no paper by the phone, there was no pen, my laptop was closed and I thought that's going to take a minute or two to warm up and uh, so I breathed on the window and uh, he said I want you to research the word Bradbury. So with that I wrote Bradbury on the on the window. Now, he said, if you research the Bradbury, you will find the solution to all of Britain's economic woes. And I went, oh, right. He said, now, look, it's been nice talking to you. I can't, you know, you won't be able to trace this call, um, but we wish you well. And please do research it. And with that, he said goodbye, and that was it. So I went, oh, OK. So that left me a bit stunned. And I immediately, the laptop was finally open. But first of all, I did 1471. Did try to a number was withheld, so he was right. I wasn't going to be able to trace it, and so here began the journey. Now he didn't say Bradbury Pound, he just said Bradbury. So I fed the word Bradbury into my search engine, and I came up with Julia Bradbury, that very nice lady who walks disused railway lines in various places, and uh, attractive lady who who walks around the place. Well, I didn't think she was going to be a solution to all of Britain's economic woes. And then I came across another Bradbury who wrote The Martian Chronicles. And I thought, oh, my God, we're straying into strange territory here. Um, but then I realised it wasn't him. But then I started to see coin collectors and stamps and stuff. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Um, and then I came across something called a Bradbury Pound, and I thought, well, what is this? Treasury. Hmm. And as I scrolled down and I fed him a few more words in, I came across uh, a gentleman called Thomas Johnston, who was a, a socialist MP in the nineteen thirties, and he was an unusual MP in the in the sense that nobody had a bad word to say about him, even the opposition. Now Thomas Johnston, um, he was an MP for Glasgow, and uh, he he was in and out of office, but when he was out, he wrote a book called um, The Financiers and the Nation. It was about 1934, 35, something like that. And uh, this, this link I found took me to, I think it was chapter nine, Usury and the Great War. And, uh, but before I just describe that, I'll just quickly say that Thomas Johnston went on to serve in Churchill's wartime government. He looked after Scottish affairs. And he is known as the father of the Scottish hydroelectric scheme. So you know the man did good, as it were. He was he was a good man. Anyway, moving back to what I discovered, Thomas Johnston and uh, the the, the um, story of what happened during the First World War. At the outbreak of the First World War, um, the now you better understand that, it like today the bank well actually the Bank of England was a genuinely private bank in those days. And uh, at the outbreak of the First World War and being a a global war, there was a lot of unease amongst ordinary people. And they were clutching their banknotes from the Bank of England, five pound notes. And I think one pound in those days, I think today it's around about 160 pounds. One pound is worth about 160, something like that today with inflation. Uh, It's a lot of money. So if, if you've got a, a £5 note and, uh, uh, and a £10 note or whatever they had in those days, you were sitting on a lot of money, and you realize that paper money could just crash, you know, things would go wrong. Whereas gold, gold is something far more substantial. And in times of crisis, gold tends to go up, and it's solid. And so people wanted to trade their notes, because if you notice on your note, it says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of. It's not, it, it's not actually based on anything. It's based on finair It's a debt note. And I owe you from, from the bank to you. And if you go into a bank, you're supposed to be able to get the equal amount in gold. So um, there were some huge queues outside the uh, Bank of England and outside the ordinary banks in the high street. Because we're now looking at August the 3rd, of 1914, the outbreak. well, August the 4th, we declared war. Um, and they suddenly realized oh my gosh, we're going to have a run of the banks because people are going to want to draw their, um, what do you call it, to draw their, they get rid of their pound note, the five pound notes and whatever, and they want to have gold, gold coins. And uh, they realized they only had 10 million pounds worth of gold in the vaults, that's 10 million by their standards, that's quite a lot of money still. I mean, we're looking at about 150 million pounds worth of gold, but it was quite a lot of gold. But nonetheless, it wasn't enough for people to ch- trade their notes in for gold. So there was going to be a run on the banks. So it was going to be a real problem. So the governor of the Bank of England went running around to David Lloyd George, who was then the They changed. He was the he was the the, what do you call it? Chancellor, Chancellor of the Exchequer Uh, before he became prime prime minister. In the first war, he became prime minister in what 1916. I think it was. But before that, he was uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Asquith was the prime minister. And uh, they said, Oh, we've got a real problem here. Look, um, you know, we're going to have a run in the banks. What can you do to help us? And immediately, and they'd obviously planned this well in advance. David Lloyd George says, well, don't worry, we'll pass a quick bill through Parliament, a Currency and Notes Act, and uh, we'll authorise the Treasury to issue one pound and and ten bob notes, um, which will be done in the same way as we issue the loose coinage, and which they still do today. In other words, the Treasury was going to um, create the notes, and the notes would be based on the credit of the nation. And this is the key to everything. These notes were going to be debt-free and interest-free because they were based on the wealth and labor potential, the creativity of the nation. So over literally three days, they passed a bill through Parliament in two and a half days. I've got Hansard, you can read Hansard, it's all there. And they they try and play it down. They don't try and say, well, this is going to be wonderful. They know that this is the undoing of the City of London and the banking system. So they have to keep it fairly low key. But nonetheless, um, the printers got going and they used stamp paper to print these one pound notes and ten bob notes. And they were signed by Sir John Bradbury, who was the first secretary to the Treasury. So that was his signature. That's why they got the nickname the Bradbury Pounds. So when they had a bank holiday, so they shut all the banks and the the Bank of England, but they reopened uh, on August the 7th, four days after the declaration of war, three days, four days, five million, that's thing, August the 4th, declaration of war, yeah, about three days after. So they they kept the banks shut and then they reopened and all the queues of people went in clutching their notes. And they were then handed the Bradbury notes with the explanation that this was done by the Treasury, this was based on the wealth of the nation, the credit of the nation, and you have nothing to worry about. They are solid. And everyone accepted them. And in fact, uh, they were so acceptable that I've got a 1914 punch book, which has actually got an ode to the Bradbury, because everyone realized that a collapse of the City of London and the collapse of the banking system and the financial system that propped up the war effort that we were now going to have to, you know suddenly rearm and, and, and basically mobilize the mobilization process, um, the economy wasn't going to collapse. The economy had been supported immediately by the wealth of the nation. And it's a very, very simple fiscal process, and it could be done today. Now what was interesting was that as soon as they did this, um, the bankers were very grateful. Obviously, they'd had their bacon saved. They, they literally had their, you know, they were, they were saved. However, they realized very quickly that they weren't going to be able to make a killing out of the killing. And uh, the bankers were a bit exasperated. They thought, well, hang on, we, we, we you know, the, the government has now saved the day and Lloyd George has done his bit. So um, the bankers went running back to David Lloyd George after a week or so and said, look. Um, can we go back to good old juicy war loans, as Thomas Johnson described them? And uh, so the government then started to say, okay, that's fair enough. And uh, so the government were buying bonds, the bankers were buying government bonds at three, three and a half, four 4% interest. And uh, throughout the entire war, then, um, the the Bradbury Pound was phased gently down. In fact, the last Bradbury wasn't uh the last one was in around about nineteen twenty-six, well after the First World War. But suddenly the numbers of Bradbury pounds were reduced considerably. And it by it by you know but in correspondence with a sudden ex you know, sudden explanatory curve upwards of the government selling bonds. So um Suddenly, the, 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 well, the national debt, give you some idea, the national debt in 1914 at the outbreak of the First World War was £650 million. At the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, the national debt had gone up to £7,500 million. So the bankers have made an absolute killing out of the First World War. And of course, with what I now know, and there have been some excellent books written about the First World War. Um, you see that the there was a cartel of very influential people um, who started and triggered the First World War. Um, I'm I'm trying to find my book, which I don't think I've got up here. Um, and there are some brilliant history historians now who have really exposed. How Edward the Seventh um, and later George the Fifth and others realised that Germany was a real threat to um, the British prestige, British Empire, and everything else. So they worked to constrain and literally force Germany into war, and that's a whole another story. But the point is, the bankers were heavily involved in that story, and there's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, the bankers did extremely well um out of the first world war and in the process put a huge debt noose around the the british economy and in fact all the economies because it wasn't just the british economy that had this the french that everyone and of course the germans were taken to the cleaners after the um first world war and of
0: course that set up
1: um the conditions needed
0: for the second world war i think that's probably enough for now absolutely perfect justin what a fascinating story it is because you've got you've got family history in there you've you've got all these interesting connections the bank of england's there the um bilderberg group comes into it and uh i think you've taken us through the thing extremely well and i did smile when you you said there that you were by the phone and desperate because you didn't have a piece of paper and a pencil i felt like that in in the past, and people are starting to tell you information, and you haven't got something to write it down. But yes, yeah, so you wrote the key, you wrote the key name in the uh, in the in the steam on the window. Well, I don't know if that window pane. We haven't. We
1: don't live in that house now, but that window pane should be in a history. Should be in the <laughs> museum now. Uh, but it was my John Buckham moment. I did suddenly feel, oh my God, what have I just been told? You know, it was a very strange feeling. I have to say.
0: Yeah. Well, look, what I'd what I like to do, Justin, is just sort of mm. um, uh, summarise a little bit of the story that you've taken us through. And then I, w- I want to prompt some debate because we know Ooh. that the subject of the Bradbury Pound can really uh, kick up debate amongst certain people, particularly people who um, believe in economics and what they've been taught about economics. Mm. But... Um, Let's think it through. So essentially, you take a ride on a train as a young lad with with a banker, a member of the Bank of England, and you are told in no uncertain terms that the politicians are not in control yeah. and the media is not in control. We control them. And that that was a very key statement mm. that the, the power of the banks can not only control media. That makes sense to me because, of course, any business has got its money um, held, apparently, in the security of the banks. And if the banks don't want to play, they can close down businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, But the politicians, that's a very interesting one, because we could then say, well, how do the banks exert control over the politicians? And I'm just going to say, I'm just going to guess, Uh, the fact is that the politicians can come up with any plan they like, any policy plan they like but if the bankers don't want to play ball the politicians are not going to be able to unlock money to uh, enable their own policies that's that's how i read that one would would you agree with that assessment well yes i mean i mean I think we've always got to say
1: that the the nouveau riche, which, who were the bankers, I mean, it all started, what was it, uh, 1694, the creation of the Bank of England, and that happened after William and Mary came across, and that was the glorious revolution. It was glorious for the bankers. It wasn't particularly glorious for the people. And you started to see merchant bankers taking a, uh, shall we say, the aristocrats of the time, and many of the aristocrats, bear in mind, had made their money out of conquest, or had done very well for themselves by serving the king or queen. Um, but there was a sort of marrying together, respectability, if you like, of the bankers with the aristocracy. And of course, politics, as we know, was a, is a dirty business. And of course, in the 18th century, uh, you had rotten boroughs. You, I mean, I always think of that wonderful Baldric, you know, and uh, Blackadder, when they did that one of the rotten borough. I mean, there was an awful lot of um, jiggly piggly going on and jiggly pokery. The legislation needed uh, for the bankers to do what they do, they were given that legislation by our so-called decision makers, and in return, it's always been well known that there are jobs in the city or some other advantages for when politicians Sort of high end politicians leave their places of business. I mean, you know, leave parliament, they suddenly find themselves introduced to a very, very useful way of making money. Um, you know, have got to be careful what I say here, I can't. But you, we all know, I mean, when you have to watch Yes Prime Minister and Yes Minister, we all laugh at that, but we all know under the surface there's a lot of truth to it. Um, and of course, we've also got to remember there's a gentleman sitting in. Uh, the House of Commons, and Parliament in general, uh, a position that was created by Queen Elizabeth I in 1571. And that gentleman's title goes is, is the City Remembrancer. And the City Remembrancer is there to protect the privileges of the City of London, which were granted to the City of London before the Norman Conquest, but then William I enshrine those ancient privileges, and in fact, those ancient privileges um, are actually acknowledged in the Great Charter of 1215, Magna Carta. And so the City of London has a sort of degree of protection, and it is so well protected that legally speaking, the City of London is actually a country within a country, or a state within a state. It is known that when the monarch goes into the City of London on formal occasions, that the monarch has to touch the sword of the City of London and ask permission to come in. So this is, this is something. These are, I mean, when we talk about the crown, many people today who have researched this, and I'm one of them, believe that the crown has been corporatized. What we're looking at is a crown where the corporate City of London runs, runs a show. Uh, The Crown should be the representative or the representative looking after our common law uh, interests and our natural law interests and and looking after what's best for the people. But in fact, um, he is looking after what's best for the City of London. There's a whole lot of more research to be done, a whole lot of um, debate to be had on this. But our politicians are the beck and call of the City of London.
0: Justin, the... yeah, this, this is absolutely fascinating uh, as we get into this stuff. Um, it's about power. It's about manipulation. There's a lot of history. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of stuff which we see. It's hidden in plain sight. We see stuff, but we don't really understand what it is. And I remember when um, we first had discussions about the Remembrancer. Nobody around me and I don't think anybody around you had ever heard that word before and then we suddenly discover that there's somebody sitting in parliament full-time and their job is to listen watch and listen and take notes to ensure that nothing happens in parliament which is going to undermine upset cause problems for the city and the mm. banking power. Mm. Now, that alone is an incredible thing, but most people have no idea this man exists and the fact that he's in post uh, for the whole time that Westminster is in sitting. Well,
1: let me, I, I've got a quote here I want to give because it's a, It's not a quote that's used very often. And it's a quote by somebody called Reginald, Reginald McAvoy, Reginald McKenna. Now, Reginald McKenna became Chancellor of the Exchequer, albeit briefly, after David Lloyd George. And uh, he then became chairman of the board of the Midland Bank. In 1924, he did this quote. He made this quote to shareholders. He said, I am afraid that the ordinary citizen will not like to be told that the banks can and do create and destroy money. And they who control the credit of a nation direct the policy of governments and hold in the hollow of their hands the destiny of the people. Now, there's another quote given by Henry Ford, the American business magnate. They try and say he never said this, but I'm told by my friends that he definitely did. And he said it is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our bank- banking and monetary system or if they did i would i believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning
0: now that just sums up what we've been saying well let's let's um, let's firm up on this because we uh, we're now on the subject of of money and we've got two interesting things around money there's what it is and we've also got who who actually creates money so if if i if i give to you how i see it and this is a um a lay person's view i've i've never really been interested in stuff like economics or particularly interested in money until i discovered that uh uh, money was the means by which we everybody man women children families the nation as a whole was being controlled by totally unaccountable bankers but for me money is simply a means of it, a, an easy means of exchange instead of running a system where if you need something you have to barter so you want some butter you happen to have a chicken, you've got to take the chicken to the market and then you, yeah. can, you can swap your chicken for the pound of butter or whatever the rate is.
1: Definition that people use, or the one I like to use, money is simply a convenient unit of exchange for goods and services that people have complete confidence in.
0: There we are, job done. Thank you. Right, so so money is something, a token, Which you're going to use because you know that if you use that particular token, whether it's gold or silver or a piece of paper or a twig or a stick, has been used in in uh, ancient history. Yeah, so we have shells, seashells, and salt. Correct. All sorts of things. Yep, salt from the the Roman pay for their soldiers from where we get salary if I remember that correctly. That's right, that's absolutely correct. Tally sticks. Tally sticks, yeah. So as long as we've got confidence in whatever we use, the system works. Mm. But we, we live in a world where something has taken over that system. We have a group of, of bankers who are completely unaccountable to the general public, and they are creating money out of nothing. At one stage, as you've talked about, um, we could see on on paper notes in UK that it actually said you could take your pound note back to the bank and get gold, an equivalent amount of gold. But that was then...
1: Oh, sovereigns and sovereigns, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that linkage was then broken. So we're now dealing in in notes, which have no inherent value in themselves. They were paper, they're now some horrible, (laughs) slippery plastic (laughs) substance. But they have no inherent value in themselves and they're not backed by gold. But we have unaccountable bankers who are sitting in, I'm sure they're very warm and very cosy rooms, but they're deciding how much currency they're going to print and distribute. And that decision-making process, which of course can control whole economies is totally unaccountable. People don't know how... they. Most people don't know the system exists, but even if they know it exists, those bankers are completely unaccountable, and they have created a mountain of debt which is now drowning not only the UK, but every other nation-state that's beholden to their control.
1: Well, let me, let me just... Uh... Tell you a quick story about a gentleman called Vincent Vickers. Not a household name, but he's quite a hero in all of this. Now I better just start by saying that <clears throat> two people have since when I discovered the the Bradbury pound, that phone call, I fell into bad company of two wonderfully charming people. They were they were lovely people. One was called David Pidcock, and the other chap was called Ken Palmerton. They were money reformers, and they'd been at it for 50 years. I was the new kid on the block. They had an incredible network of people. And I was being rung up by some insiders and given tip-offs by insiders. And of course, through my, own, my uncles, there was one or two people who knew my uncle who were ringing me. So I was getting information coming from behind the scenes, mainly retired people. They were quite elderly, the people I talked to, but they were absolutely adamant that the Bradbury pound should be reintroduced. Now, what was interesting, I had a phone call about two years ago uh, from a gentleman claiming he was a relative of Vincent Vickers. Now, I'll, I'll explain in a moment what, who Vincent Vickers was and why he's so important for what we're doing. But what this gentleman said to me, says, I don't know why you're having any problems with any economist. You should just, just simply face them with this one bit of information. That should shut up everyone who belongs to the Austrian School of Economics, the New School of Economics, the Keynesian School, and so forth. You know, all these different schools of thought within economics. He said none of them take on board this one essential point, that the entire financial process in the world, the entire fiscal system in the world, is controlled by unelected, unaccountable, private people, who meet in absolute secrecy. Now why on earth is that being allowed? Now I'll come on to who Vincent Vickers was. Now Vincent Vickers was actually a director of the Bank of England, joined the First World War. His family was Vickers Armstrong, Um, he'd make a lot of money from the armaments industry, he was, uh, I think, a Freeman of the City of London or Lieutenant of the Freedom of, London, of, of the City of London. So he was a safe pair of hands within the City of London. And he witnessed at first hand how, how the Bank of England had been caught short at the outbreak of the First World War. And he saw immediately how the Treasury saw, you know, stop the collapse and what they did. And he was impressed. Now, after the war, the new governor of the Bank of England, now his name was Montague Norman. He, in 1930, with a a, chap, a gentleman, a German gentleman called Holmer, Holmer Schlacht, and Holmer Schlacht became Hitler's finance minister. These two individuals in 1930 started the Bank for International Settlements. And the cover story for the Bank for International uh, Settlements was that after the hyperinflation in Germany and the collapse and all the chaos on the markets in in America and so forth, it was to look after German war reparations after the Treaty of Versailles. In other words, to carry on making sure that uh, the Allies were receiving uh, money from Germany for having started the First World War. Uh, It was a complete setup, as we know, to create the Second World War, but that's beside the point. The real reason for the Bank for International Settlements was to become a central bank for all the central banks. So you're looking at, you know, the central banks, like the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve. Today we have the European Central Bank, we have the Bank of Russia, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the Bank of France. I mean, you know, and it's something like, uh, from memory, 63 central banks are coordinated by the Bank for International Settlements. And this is probably, in my view, this is the most powerful international organization in the world that nobody knows about. I have talked to over 25 MPs, and the first question, after a friendly hello, is to ask them, what can you tell me about the Bank for International Settlements? And they can tell me absolutely nothing.
0: Can I just reinforce that that point, mm. Justin? Because when we, we, but you and I, but also the UK column, when when we really started to um, lift the stone to have a look at what the Bank of England International Settlements was, of course, you find it immensely powerful, um, buried uh, buried there in Switzerland. Um, unaccountable to nobody, but also awarding itself diplomatic immunity, both in Switzerland and, as we discovered probably a year and a bit ago, 18 months ago, time goes so quickly now, but Mm. we were astonished to find that there was a project going on which meant that the Bank of International Settlements had moved into London under exactly the same rules that yeah. it was that it had diplomatic immunity um its employees couldn't be stopped uh, its communications were secret and sacrosanct and alongside that it was having regular meetings with the bank of england and senior members of the bank of england mm-hmm. where there was no accountability to the british public so i'll I'll make sure in the notes for this uh discussion today justin Mm -hmm. um that i point people back to the uk column news editions where we started to talk about this
1: yeah oh it it, it, honestly it's quite incredible now i better get back to my hero vincent vickers because he then went on to um well he, he he basically did a big falling out with montague norman and uh, he said, I, I'm not going to allow you to get away with this unscathed. And he wrote a book um, called Economic Tribulation. And sadly, he died just as it was going to be basically, you know, well, basically his daughter got hold of the text. And she, she produced the book. And it came out in 1939, just as World War II had started. I'll just read, I've got his book, the, the, the final chapter entitled The Direction of Future Policy. And he, he writes in the introduction, he said, in the question of what steps should be taken to put matters right, I can only suggest a general direction in which our future policy should point. For I myself do not believe that there exists any perfect cut and dried scheme, which is likely hereafter to be adopted lock, stock and barrel, as our future monetary system. Moreover, there are many other technical and psychological considerations which would be necessary in order to achieve peace and contentment amongst the people. And then he says the main objectives, however, should include, and I'm only going to read the first. I mean, there are how many points? Uh, there's uh, eight points, but the first one is the key one. And he says state control and state issue of currency and credit through a central organization managed and controlled by the state. In other words, we do not want central banks, private central banks, or any private money creators anywhere near the decisions of the country. And our decisions making should be done, obviously, by thoroughly well-elected, decent people, honourable people who are not tainted because they want to climb a greasy pole um, for their own personal gain and wealth. There it is:
0: state control and state issue of currency. Justin, if if I can come in, if I may, I, as you've said that, I'm smiling to myself because I can imagine, I can imagine some economists um, drawing in breath and oh my goodness, this is this is the last thing we want is the issuance of money um, in the control of the state. Now, to be to be fair to those people, I can understand their angst a little bit, because, of course, if we look at the state at the moment, whether it's the state in the UK or it might be the US or it could be the European Union, we see a state which is absolutely corrupt Correct. in everything it does. It's let's stick to the UK. We have total corruption which means that we're getting involved in wars overseas with no debate in parliament and the money's being created for those wars. I'll come to that a little bit in a minute. We have ripped apart the NHS. We're denying people um, medical care at the moment. There are so many directions we can go in. The armed forces are being ripped apart at the moment. We're talking a war, but uh, it's acknowledged that that we we can't run an army we can't run a navy properly we're losing uh we're losing troops we haven't got enough tanks ships can't go to sea the carriers haven't got enough people to work so we're talking utter corruption and yes the idea of allowing the existing corrupt state to issue currency would we want to let boris johnson near Um, producing currency? No, of course we wouldn't. But the point is that if the state system was working properly, whatever it did, including the issuance and the issuing and control of money, would be fully transparent and accountable to the electorate. This is where the difference is that if the control of money is within the state and the state is working properly, the public can actually see what is happening, why more money is being created or why money is being withdrawn, and they can have confidence that the right economic policy is being followed uh, because they have a fully accountable system which deals with money. Your mm. point, which has been absolutely uh, correct of course is that at the moment control of the money system is in the hands of these totally unaccountable bankers
1: Uh, and and this is why what we're all doing everything we do has to be holistic because i would not want the bradbury pound the new bradbury pound or whatever we're going to create treasury money anywhere near the hands of the current democratic process that we jokingly call parliament and stuff. I mean, it it, it is all about egos. It's all about um, personal advantage. I, I I mean, every aspect of the governance of our country sends a chill down my spine. I, I loathe it. And uh, I, I think we've got to examine exactly how we're going to govern ourselves in the future. There's got to be massive uh, conventions, democratic conventions to... to to explore how we uh, promote the Great Charter of 1215, the principles of trial by jury, all the things that our wonderful common law can give us. There's a huge amount to do. And no doubt we'll we'll probably find some new ideas as well. But the most important thing is there has to be accountability and there has to be transparency. And if you have that, then we can have a safe money creation and money supply that we know is honourable, and is there to do the job that it's there to do,
0: right? And and let's stress uh, another point here, which is, and you you have you have mentioned it, but it's whether money is issued as credit or it's issued as debt. Yes, and we are drowning in debt. You gave those figures for the increase in national debt during the First World War. I think you said it went up from six hundred and fifty million to. Seven and a half thousand, and of seven,
1: course, yeah, those... seven and a half thousand million, 7.5 yeah.
0: billion. Yeah, uh,
1: and, the, and the national debt today is it something what, 1.5 trillion? I, I haven't got the exact figures in front of me. And the monthly repayments on that debt, which was arrived at by creating money out of thin air by private, unelected, and unaccountable people. I mean, the whole thing is just a nightmare. And on top of that, we have these um, derivatives, which nobody can really explain easily what a derivative is. But I think it's something like 1.4 quadrillion dollars. Quadrillion. I mean, that's a 1,000 trillion. I mean, we're looking at insanity. It's just simple insanity. And it's about total control. Because if they drowned us, because what they're trying to bring in is central bank digital currencies. What they're trying to do is create a banking system that is programmable in the sense that you can put a social credit system attached to it. So what is happening in communist China, where everyone has their lives directed by the state 24-7, and you are monitored in your workplace, on the streets, and in your home, in such a way using technology? So it's a technocracy. But the central part of that is a central bank digital currency. And if you are a bad boy, and you don't behave yourself, and the state doesn't like what you're doing, you can't draw
0: any money and justin let's let's absolutely reinforce that point mm. because that is happening in uk people who have upset the state are finding that their bank accounts are shut down exactly and or, or we've got it via publishing that that well. you want to put something out on uh youtube and you've got you've got some of your streams monetized so you can get a little bit of income in from adverts and if youtube doesn't like your politics or what you've said on the video they shut down your funding stream so yeah. we can we can see the we can see the horrific power of this system and the fact that this system of the money and the money supply and the um the money policy itself and the surveillance system effectively coming under the control of the same people because the the technical firms that create the surveillance are using, of course, the banking system to operate their their technical corporations. So so they're instantly under the control of the banks as they produce the surveillance system. I've just looked at my notes here. Apparently, the... uh... The, the, the total um,
1: the, the derivatives is now $2.3 quadrillion. $2.3 quadrillion. It's insanity. It's just total insanity.
0: Let's <laughs> use the word toxic debt because that's, that is a term that's often been used in the papers and on the BBC when they're talking about this. Um, what is it? It's simply gambling on money off to the side of the visible uh, economic system we, we've got uh, we've got people betting on commodity costs and rises and falls yeah. and they can make huge sums of money out of it they can make huge sums of money out of mortgages bundled yeah. up into tens of thousands of mortgages but is is this visible to the uh, average person the voter no. absolutely not And, of course, what we haven't mentioned yet
1: is the fake green um, agenda and how they're they're going to tie money into the net zero and how to make huge amounts of money out of that, but equally penalizing uh, any business that doesn't abide by the net zero diktats. And they can be quashed. I mean, who was the the previous um, um, Carney? Mark Carney. Mark Carney is now responsible for um, deciding what companies can flourish and what companies can't. Because if they don't follow the, the the fake green agenda, the net zero, all this rubbish about climate, man-made global warming, if they don't uh, abide by that, they'll have their rug pulled from under them and they will no longer be able to exist as a, a company. It, it, it's incredible. And you've got the BlackRock, you've got Larry Fink, you've got all... And the House of Rothschilds, you've got all the big banking dynasties, they're all working together. You've got the World Economic Forum, you know, what happens at Davos, you get the multi-billionaires meeting at Davos. They are lining their pockets with a completely fake green agenda, and it's all about imprisoning people into 15-minute cities and having their lives dictated to 24-7 and using technology to literally imprison us. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. It's, it's staggering, in fact. And we're
0: falling for it. We are falling for Well, <laughs> some people are falling for it. A lot of good people aren't, luckily. Yeah. Justin, just bring you back to the Bradbury Pound. Mm. Reinforce what we're saying here. Well, I think what we're saying about the Bradbury Pound is that here is this fantastic... Historical precedent fully documented about how it is possible to run an economy with money uh, which is um, created by the government itself as credit as opposed to debt. That was done with the Bradbury Pound and it stabilized a system. It did at that time also helped the bankers because they were actually in trouble. And as you told us, the, the bankers worked to take back control. But nevertheless, the lesson from the Bradbury Pound is that we do not have to be beholden on unaccountable, unelected bankers for the creation of money and the control of the money supply. Now, with that statement made... I've been completely bemused when we've had people um, getting very upset with the idea of the Bradbury pound because they say, oh, but it's just money for war. And (laughs) their logic for that is that the greenback, which you described, the American greenback, was indeed used to stabilise a situation uh, in, in a period of war in the US. And that is absolutely true. However, that's what the money was used for. That doesn't mean to say it has to be used for war. That is a decision to be made within governments and within democracies and to be controlled and vetoed and uh, steered by the electorate itself. So to try and say, oh, well, you mustn't deal in the Bradbury pound because it's only money for war... This is a complete nonsense. It is a total nonsense. Absolutely, 100% total nonsense. And just out of interest, uh, there are
1: two historical occasions where money like the Bradbury Pound was attempted in this country before. One of them was when Liverpool, and again, this was as a result of the Liverpool had suffered terribly and they needed to rebuild their infrastructure, their port, etc. And the government gave Liverpool, uh, as a city, the opportunity to create money that was based on the wealth of Liverpool. And in 1793, a certain amount of money was allowed by the government to be created by Liverpool. And I've got a picture in front of me now of a Liverpool note, uh, so obviously 1793, and it worked to treat. And then the money was then repaid back to the government and they'd rebuilt their infrastructure. Humble Guernsey, again, after the Napoleonic War, in 1817, the Guernsey pound was allowed, and it was a governor who said, well, hang on, we've got the materials, we've got the labour force, but we haven't got the money because the city of London won't give us, a, you know, they want to loan us money. He said, why can't we just base it on what we, what we are? And they did, and as a result, Guernsey managed to rebuild its infrastructure after the Napoleonic War. As I said, it works, and there are historical examples of it working. You don't flood you don't create so much money that you do start to create hyperinflation and inflation. You don't do anything stupid like that. You, 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 I liken it to a canal. You know how you've got canal on a water level? And you have, so you've got the rainfall coming in, you've got water coming in. So you, you, you then have to have sluices to let the water run off. So you, you keep the level of the canal happy so that business can take part. The barges can go up and down and do what they have to do. In other words, it is there to create the liquidity needed for economics to, well, for for the economy to basically function in a way that nobody is left behind. Everyone benefits, and everyone can feel freedom, because this is the important thing: to be free from debt. Now, yeah, people still borrow money, and you can perhaps borrow money and you pay a set charge, but it will be debt-free, interest-free money. In other words, a bit like uh, the banking done in uh, the Middle East. Um, there are many ways. And I'm, I'm as I said, I'm, a, I'm not an economist. You're not an economist. And I'm sure good people will come up with better ideas. But the principle is there. The principle is debt-free, interest-free money that's based on the wealth and the labor potential, the creativity of your country, the credit of your
0: country. And you use that rather than going to private bankers. That money does not have to be created by by bankers this is a complete fallacy that we need to give this immense power total power in fact to unaccountable bankers now i am going to say to our audience today um that um over the years a number of people have gone back and they've challenged politicians about the uh, banking system and the and the creation of money as debt and the misery that that caused. There's many people that have written to their politicians about the Bradbury Pound, and we still have some of those communications and the response from the various MPs. And what do we see? Overwhelmingly, the MPs come back with a response that says, oh, no, 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 If, if we allow the creation of money to occur outside of the control of the bankers, uh, we're going to have inflation. And So the replies that the politicians give is that we have to have the bankers controlling the money because they are the only people uh, capable of controlling and regulating the system. This is absolute nonsense, but their letters show the fear when people have asked an MP about the Bradbury pound. The MPs have obviously gone straight off to the treasury. Nowadays, of course, they wouldn't even do that. they go to Conservative central office to ask the question and some researcher would come back. But in the earlier days, uh, when it, when it elicited a response from the treasury, you could almost smell the fear in the letter mm-hmm. that somebody had asked a question, why? are these unelected, unaccountable bankers allowed to control the monetary system? Why don't we reissue the Bradbury?
1: Well, can I just quickly come in and say, remember the one pound coins, the two pound coins, the 50 pence, the 20 pence, the 10p's, the whatever, the 5p's, the 2p's and the 1p's, those are all produced by the government using the same principle of the Bradbury pound. They literally, the Treasury Creates and issues that money using the uh, the place where the actual coinage is made, etc. So, and it doesn't involve
0: the banks. It's only the banks that involve the banks. Justin, just add a bit to that so so that people are absolutely clear. So, the Treasury does um, issue some money currency that that mm. coins and uh, uh, basic coins in your pocket. I think I'm right in saying is 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 about three percent. It's m. It's called m naught, and I think it's two point three percent now. Right. So it's two point three percent of the money in circulation in UK is actually issued uh, uh, by by the Treasury. Yeah. And that comes as the change in your pocket. Yeah. The rest of it is under the control of the bankers. Yeah. Now, the other bit I want to um, ask you about is. Another pretty vehement challenge that comes in from people who claim to be well-versed in all matters money is, oh, well, you can't have the Bradbury cat Pound because it, it isn't backed by gold. And this makes me laugh because the money we use today is, is not backed by gold. By gold. It's, it's pure fiat cu- currency. But even if it were backed by gold, who controls the price of gold? exactly that's, got control, that. that's controlled by a committee and yeah. they use the term and okay this is a professional term they use but it again makes me laugh because they fix the price of gold well they absolutely yeah. do fix the price of gold so the the spot price of gold is fixed at a particular level by a group of totally unaccountable people exactly. so to say that you can't have a currency that works because it isn't backed by gold when the system that's fleeced the public in UK and worldwide for a great many years has been a gold-backed system where the same bankers control the price of that gold. It's
1: incredible. Um, I mean, of course, I, I love it when people say to me, oh, well, we'll get back onto the gold standard. Now, if we're talking about finding, if you want to underpin the amount of money that you spend on services and on infrastructure for the nation to meet the needs of the nation you're looking at billions and billions where are you going to find the gold to underpin the gold standard where are you going to find the gold there isn't enough gold in the world for this and if you, if you went to go back if you said you were going to go back on the gold standard gold would just go up in value out of all proportion where would you where are you going to find the gold nobody can answer me that when they say Oh, well, we'll go back onto the gold standard. Brilliant. Where are you going to find it?
0: Where are you going to find that gold at a price you can afford? Uh, Justin, it, it's, they're talking about the gold standard, but also we, we we should be pointing out that it's gold in your pocket. If you've got the gold in your pocket as a sovereign or whatever it is, there's no messing around. The gold is out there. Uh, people have got a share of that gold. It's in their pocket or in their or in the bank, or it's in a um, safe deposit box somewhere, but they own the gold. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is that the the unaccountable bankers are the people that have the gold and trade it and fix the price. I mean, this is this is a nonsense. It, we're we're on to the, the key part here, aren't we? Which is mm. that if people really understood this system, they'd be outraged. And, and we've got bankers like Mark Carney actually completely unaccountable. Totally. And the same bankers, and, and it was Mark Carney or Mark Carnage as Mike Robinson likes to call him, who stated that if companies did not become green, that was under the control of the bankers' green policy, world economic policy, they would be put out of business. Mm. Totally. So this is is an incredible situation. We need to deal with it, don't we? I watch at the moment the terrible war in Ukraine, with maybe half a million dead at the moment. And that war could only, can only continue because Ukraine is being funded by the West, by US, European Union, UK. And what are they doing? What are we doing? We are loaning the Ukrainians money, money at interest, in order to help them um keep this proxy war going. If we turned off the the money supply to Ukraine, the war would be over. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is the key to everything. Everything that we're
1: up against with the deep state, with whatever you want to call them, we if once we take back control of the money creation and money supply, they they collapse. There's nothing these globalists can do. If they do not control the money, they cannot control the world stage. Could I just perhaps mention, I know we're coming to the end now, but can I just mention Professor Carol Quigley, who in 1966 wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. Now, Carol Quigley was uh, quite an insider. Um, he, was, uh, he, he basically uh, lectured and he took under his wing... Um, what's his name? Oh gosh, I can't remember. The um, prime minister. I'm uh, sorry. The U.S. president. Um, oh gosh. Um, anyway, come back to me in a moment. Sorry, sorry. but let me just read what he wrote. Now he was allowed to attend regular top level meetings of the governors of the bank of the Bank for International Settlements. He actually got to see behind the scenes. Okay, so he 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 was trusted he was an academic and uh, so he wrote in 1966 in this book tragedy and hope he wrote the following during the past two centuries when the peoples of the world were gradually winning their political freedom from dynastic monarchies the major banking families of Europe and America were actually reversing the trend by setting up new dynasties of political control through the formation of international financial Combines. These banking dynasties had learned that all governments must have sources of revenue from which to borrow in times of emergency. They had also learned that by by, that by providing such funds from their own private resources, they could make both kings and democratic leaders tremendously subservient to their will. So later on, he wrote: the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's leading central banks, which were themselves private corporations. The growth of financial capitalism made possible a centralization of world economic control and use of this power for the direct benefit of financiers. And the indirect injury of all other economic groups. And by the way, he was the he was uh, and he he basically took Bill Clinton under his arms. So he basically, he he basically briefed him and and brought him into the political fold. So Carol Quigley basically turned on the people who trusted him, and he exposed exactly what was going on. And they tried to stop his book from coming out. They tried to destroy his career. But he is certainly one of the heroes that we should all acknowledge once the good people take back control over the, from the bad people. But Carol Quigley is certainly a hero of mine.
0: Justin, thank you very much. Um, really excellent um, run, run through Bradbury Pound all about it and the history and the troubles of the uh, banking system. Uh, it's It's been really fascinating and I'm thinking we need to do a part two. I just want to say at the end as, as we've talked through this and we're now really homing in on bankers and these very uh, powerful banking institutions such as the Bank of International Settlements, completely unaccountable they're coming up with policies which are doing huge damage to individuals and families and countries. They are funding the conflicts and the abuses. I mean, Gaza at the moment is, is if Ukraine is bad, uh, Gaza is just disgusting. I, words fail me as I watch what's happening there. But not all bankers are bad. I think we have to say this because... It's absolutely true that if you take any organisation where there's bad things going on, there will be people lower down the scale who don't really understand what their own system is doing and who's controlling it. Uh, and um, there are good people. And we have had bankers break ranks and talk about what's going on. And so we, we've got to recognise that. But having said that, I'm not at all squeamish in saying that every Adult man and woman in this country should now be lifting stones to identify what these organizations really are and who's involved and where's the minutes of their meetings. We need to be really digging to find out who who the very small group of people are that control such powerful banks as the Bank of International Settlements. Because you can be sure it isn't a couple of hundred people controlling it. It's going to come down to a a power base. I'm going to say three or five of them. Mm. And if we have such small numbers of people with such immense power in their corrupt, uh, malevolent hands... We need need to identify these people. We need to know who they are and we need to start exposing the damage that this international banking system is really doing.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, mean, at the moment I'm writing something which I'm going to be releasing in a couple of weeks, two to three weeks' time, uh, which gives further evidence of the mindset that we're up against, who's behind it, how they operate... Um, and uh, it will go into some controversial areas, I know, but this is where the truth is. We have to go where the truth is, And uh, but I, I just want to, my final words just need to be this. Those who control the money control the world stage. Now, if we the people want to control the world stage, then we have to take back control of money creation and money supply, sovereign money for sovereign people. That's it, Brian, in a nutshell. And anything other than that, because all these different economic schools, they've all been set up by the system to protect the system. We have to break away completely. Lock, stock, and bow, we have to break away from the system that they've created. Otherwise we'll just be putting sticking tape over wounds and, and they'll still carry on plunging us into debt. And, and and as I said, look at China, they've got ways to completely control our lives twenty four seven. And and we have to stop them. And as I said, take back control of money creation and money supply to make it totally transparent and accountable
0: where the people are fully in charge. That is the way to defeat them. Brilliant. Justin, thank you very much for that. It's, it's been really fascinating discussion with you and it's been fascinating to hear through the story. I'll just, I'll just add we've got to the exact point where your mysterious uh, man who phoned you Uh, because he said if you if you want to stop the economic woes I think that's what you said that's right to say if you want to stop all of Britain's economic woes it would stop all of Britain's economic woes yeah and he then pointed you at the Bradbury so we're not saying this is the complete solution for everything we're saying the Bradbury can teach us a huge amount and we need to understand the Bradbury and pay attention to it Justin I hope you'll come back for part two with me
1: no, I look forward to it. I mean, and, and then by that time, I'll have probably released what I'm
0: writing on at the moment. OK, that's, that's really good. We'll leave it there. So a big thank you to you and ultimately to UK Column listeners. I'm going to say to them, I hope you enjoy this one. But my goodness, I think this is a really important discussion. Justin, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Brian. Thank you
0: very much.